episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show. Today, we have another really fascinating guest for you, uh, helping to create a better tomorrow on uh, many different fronts. And we're going to be getting into some really unique, uh, we'll call conversion themes, that uh, some which we may have independently touched on on previous episodes, but uh, not yet in this integrated fashion. And I'm really excited about uh, listening to the show myself <laughs> as we go forward. Um, we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Sean Guillory, uh, who is a senior robotics process automation developer uh, at the company Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, which is an American uh, management information technology consulting firm. Uh, Dr. Guillory got his start, though, um, at Dartmouth, uh, where he did his PhD in cognitive neuroscience, uh, which was followed up uh, as a postdoc researcher down at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he was doing some fascinating work uh, on mapping uh, the behavior and cognitive functions in brain tumor patients in order to help protect uh, their brain function during uh, things like neurosurgery. Um, and then Dr. Guillory took a, a little turn in his career and, and, and moved from uh, neuroscience uh, into the area of data and robotics, uh, working at firms like Consumer Affairs, Clear Channel Communications, uh, working in this really unique area known as robotic process automation, this uh, really unique form of automation technology, uh, working with sort of, sort of metaphorical robots, artificial intelligence, to do a lot of really interesting tasks for us, and we're going to be jumping into all sorts of themes uh, that have to do with uh, business efficiency and national security and cyber defense, really, really some really cool topics. So uh, all that being said, Dr. Sean Guillory, thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule today to talk to us for a little while. Uh, definitely my pleasure. So yeah, thank you for inviting me. You know, um, Sean, I'd love to start things off like we typically do uh, by handing you the floor for a bit. Um, and if you could really start off by, by talking a little bit about yourself, going into your background, everything from where you grew up, uh, how you developed uh, your initial interest, of course, in, uh, in the neurosciences and were involved in uh, publishing uh, papers with the topics like exploring emotions using invasive methods, reviewing 60 years of human intracranial electrophysiology, and ultimately uh, how you went from that and got involved in this really other fascinating uh, high-tech area of uh, robotic process automation. I think that might be a great way to, to start things off and what we're going to be talking about later on in this episode. Oh, goodness gracious. Um, I think it probably, well, the very, very beginning is um, both my parents were in the Air Force and they did over 20 years. Um, so I was just a, a military brat. Uh, I still have not in my life lived in a place for more than five years at a time. I'm looking to break the record here uh, shortly, but um, even like after, you know, being governmentally mandated to move, you know, like in terms of like where my parents go, uh, you know, I, I kind of had, you know, fun in terms of, uh, you know, exploring different things and cultures and whatnot. Um, I feel, I feel fortunate in terms of being able to move that quickly because, uh, you know, I hear these stories of, you know, folks that, you know, did something embarrassing in first grade and then, you know, they're like, like, did they like, you know, still make fun of you in like high school and that versus, you know, 
I could do some silly, like call me Batman for two years. And then, you know, I'm, just, you know, I'm not going to necessarily see those folks later. So I had a lot of fortunate kind of like restarts, which helps because I was a really silly kid. Um, I guess closer in terms of uh, like career wise, how we kind of start, I guess even starting with like funny, I kind of wanted to, you know, like, how can I be funny? Um, and that kind of morphed into, I had this, which I was like, all right in high school. Um, but in terms of like starting college, I just had this like notebook that would just like write all these kind of like funny, interesting things. in. that also ended up becoming like the same notebook that I just use for uh, classes and to put notes in. And like in college, I really started getting interested in like different subjects like history and philosophy. And uh, I don't know where the blending came. I can't point to exact date, but it didn't take me long to be really interested into the, um, uh, like the academic study of humor and laughter and an undergraduate, it was really focused on, which my undergraduate degree was uh, in philosophy with a minor in linguistics, because first I was looking at it in terms of uh, non-traditional, uh, like non-Aristotelian kind of logic and like deontic logic and all these kind of different logic to try to like map out like, okay, is it an incongruity thing, is it a superiority thing, but looking at it in terms of logic, and looking at it in terms of uh, uh, linguistics, a lot of acoustic phonetics, uh, kind of like recording to see like, okay, like can you discern like the difference between like a fake laughter or real laughter and kind of look at stuff like that. So I was remember real first kind of like play with data on that. But one of the things that I kind of wanted to put a theme and really, you know, like put it out there folks, um, you know, I, I, my undergraduate uh, uh, university is Texas State University. Uh, which I'm very, very proud of. Um, again, if folks out there haven't necessarily heard of it, you know, in terms of size, which, you know, it's 28,000 people, you know, so it's not like a small university by mm -hmm. any means. But in terms of, you know, like known schools in Texas, you know, it's, you know, it's kind of down there. Um, and I remember freshman year going to sophomore year, um, just, you know, like I, I was even like in like the psychology, actually the philosophy department with other folks, you know, I think, I think they're still clearly smarter than me. Um, we were looking at like the top list in terms of philosophy programs in like the whole world. We we're like, oh, yeah, it'd be awesome to go to NYU, Stanford, Cambridge. But we kind of had this thing where, again, like we were like, oh, but they'll never look at somebody from, you know, a little state school on that. And it wasn't really until, you know, I just kind of took that as a given, like, okay, like there's a limit on where I can necessarily go. Um, I had the fortunate uh, honor of meeting um, uh, Dr. Alan Hine, uh, who's then an emeritus at uh, uh, MIT's um, Brain and Cognitive Science Department. He gave me the talk at our school. And I was just like, you know, by that time I knew I wanted to do some probably more in like neuroscience, uh, looking at stuff in terms of humor and laughter. Uh, I asked him, I was like, what kind of stuff do I need to do to get into a program like that? He said that you need uh, as much research experience as you can get, you know, like in terms of thesis, you get stuff published, it's even better. And at least like three dynamite recommendations and that'll probably do them. Like, okay, very next day, go over to the psychology department, uh, knock on a couple of doors, be like, I never take a psych class or a stats class uh, or neuro class, which is the kind of stuff I want to do. Uh, I want, you know, if you can let me in your lab, you know, I'm a pretty quick learner on these things. Some doors shut in your face and that's going to be normal. That's an, uh, another part of the theme I kind of want to put to folks out there. But one person gave me a chance, Dr. Rako Graham, and I am thankful for her, like, 
every day. She really took a chance on me. She was very, very tough. Uh, so it was a learning curve, but stuck with it, you know, in terms of suggesting like you should try to do like summer research, uh, got the opportunity to work at uh, Northern Arizona University to do like my first kind of EEG work. So that'd be mm -hmm. like the scalp electrodes um, with uh, Dr. Chad Woodruff. So I thank him for giving me the chance uh, with some of my background on that. Um, and yeah, I did kind of like first research that in terms of the honor thesis was looking at uh, hemispheric differences in processing. So we had kind of a setup where like, okay, is it piping into more like uh, uh, left hemisphere or right hemisphere um, mm -hmm. in terms of looking at like uh, studies on that. And during that time, probably, I probably say starting mid sophomore year, I started reaching out in terms of like different kind of graduate programs in terms of uh, this is gonna sound weird and uh, but like bear with me. Um, at the time, I tried to find that list again. I don't know if they like changed or just made it better. It just had like every psychology program in the world on LinkedIn and just like to click over to that. So I'm like, okay, I'll just start here. It just took, you know, like multiple months just going through like, okay, uh, who is doing uh, research that's kind of related to, cause yeah, I want to do stuff around humor and laughter if I could. Mm -hmm. um, reach out to folks, tell them like, hey, uh, um, this is the kind of stuff I'm interested in. This is the kind of stuff you seem to be interested in where I think we can have interconnections. Are you looking for grad students this year? If so, what kind of stuff do you look for in a, you know, like a good grad student? Um, reach out to folks. Some folks you never get a response back. Some folks you do, you kind of keep the conversations going until it reaches out to, uh, you know, hey, can we get on a phone call or, hey, you're like right up the road, even if that's 500 miles out, you know, can I drive to your lab? Or if it's like meeting at a conference. And I just did that until I got to um, like the final, it's probably like final eight universities. Uh, so when I applied, I got, you know, interviews to seven of them. Uh, so I was really fortunate in that regard. So that's kind of like, I guess the secret sauce in on that in terms of just following up, which I didn't know, like, at the time, I didn't know anything about like networking or anything like that, or uh, so um, you'll, you'll see that kind of thing in terms of reaching out to folks, uh, kind of not knowing what I'm doing. Uh, a, a couple times, like I guess in my uh, career, I just so happened to be uh, doing the right thing in that. But um, I was fortunate in terms of like the networking interviews. Uh, uh, as soon as I went to Dartmouth, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love uh, uh, again. I've never been to the Northeast or anything. But it was just this little play. Again, I want to say stuff to humor and laughter. I knew I was going to be on the weird end. I was looking at posters of people studying like vestibular systems in uh, ice skaters. And I was looking at like posters of folks doing, um, looking at studying like micro expressions on people who just had Botox. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not going to be weird at all here. <laughs> uh, I'll right in uh, in terms of doing stuff to humor and laughter. Uh, it just really was kind of like a good fit. Um, so it seemed like it was kind of mutual on that end too, because uh, it seemed like next day I got like, hey, do you want to come? Like, yeah, even if I had like other interviews. Uh, so I had that like in a pod, I'm like, all right, I got one more interview. We checked that out, but it's probably going to be a yes. Um, and it was. Um, and Dartmouth was just um, really good to me in terms of, uh, I think also the fortunate thing where I got uh, one of those National Science F uh, Foundation like graduate research fellowships. Uh, um, as well. Uh, so that kind of afforded me to really do the kind of stuff I wanted to research. Um, and then how do we get to the stuff in terms of like uh, working with neurosurgery patients? 
it started off purely in terms of um, wanting to study more on the academic question. It didn't take me too long to be like, oh, if I also want to study laughter, I can't do that in an MRI machine. You'll get ghosting all over the place just from like this kind of little head movement. So I'm like, okay, that's not going to work. Uh, scalp electrode, again, the stuff that you get like on the face and the, even kind of like uh, muscle on the face, it just totally, you know, uh, like trounces anything you're going to get from the brain. So even like neck movement, it's just too much. But when I discovered that at least in um, like epilepsy patients, which that's primarily where I worked, I did a little in terms of deep brain stimulation in mm -hmm. grad school, uh, working at Dartmouth Hitchcock, but also were epilepsy patients um, where they actually go through two surgery. And by this point, they're like, okay, this is probably a focal form of epilepsy. Uh, we're seeing if we can find anything in terms of dysplasia. And they have two surgeries. First one, they open up and they put uh, uh, different electrodes directly on the brain or depth mm -hmm. electrodes in there if you're trying to get into like hippocampus. And some, some places prefer, uh, prefer like all depth electrodes and then some have more of the grids. Um, they have that on. Hopefully it doesn't take two, more than like two weeks of the person having it on their brain uh, wrapped up and just sitting in their bed um, to get to like, okay, this is where the epilepsy is coming from. So that's the clinical reason for that. And then once they know exactly where it's coming from with the best spatial temporal resolution possible when it's like right there, um, the surgeon would move forward in terms of doing the resection in terms of like really knowing where the dysplasia or uh, whatever is affecting um, and causing these seizures uh, is. Um, but during that time, you just have a, a lot of time, you know, when they're just like bored of their bed um, to work with them kind of doing um, research experiments. And the thing is, like I so said, even when they're having the epilepsy, which is usually like, so like a big motor event moving their whole body, the signal's clear as a bell. So I'm like, okay, anything dealing with like laughter, that's going to be absolutely fine. Um, I reached out to uh, the hospital, which folks in the department were like, kind of good luck in terms of like, you know, you're going to get something. I, I just got very fortunate that there was a pretty new behavioral neurologist at the time, uh, Dr. Christoph Bujarski. Uh, who's looking to do stuff like, hey, I want to do like social and emotional kind of like research as well. So I'm like, matchmate. So just, just, just sheer luck on that. So I was real fortunate. It was much more of a pioneering effort. Um, we still have research that um, is coming out and uh, things are coming out um, uh, around that as well. Uh, but what I kind of learned from that, which kind of, brought up to like this bigger passion that kind of even like stays with me to this day is let me put it this way probably in combination of both like at Dartmouth and even at MD Anderson when I was a postdoc mm -hmm. probably over 200 patients I worked with maybe two or three are like I don't want to do your silly experiments which is actually kind of like touching and like you know a lot of folks like why would you want to do that like it's a surgery uh, but <laughs> A lot of folks just say yes, not like in a course, like they said yes. And I even asked them one day, like, where are the kind of things that, you know, like made you want to do this kind of like uh, basic research? And the idea being, because um, I know that the kind of stuff that you're working on will help out the next person that has to be in this bed. And that really was touching in me. Um, and it was something where, I don't know if that was the exact moment, but there was a lot of things kind of precipitated around a time where um, the idea of just doing like basic science research where for the most part, in terms of like academia, uh, 
the, the, the coin or at least the, uh, the, the mechanism that kind of gets you uh, uh, promoted in the kind of things is publishing in these journals and, you know, like talking sure. conferences and that will precipitate bringing in grants. Right. It's not necessarily getting it applied and getting it out there to help people. You know, that is in a lot of ways, that's almost seen as like a distraction. Um, and that, and I kind of knew like, okay, I want to do something that was like much more applied. So yes, was I able to do like really cool uh, research in terms of um, uh, even kind of like single cell and uh, human kind of research in terms of social and emotional kind of research? Yes, but uh, you know, in terms of finding different ways and different methods to kind of um, uh, like help out patients directly, um, that was the motivation, definitely my um, ending years at Dartmouth, um, getting my PhD, and then motivating me right into MD Anderson and going after that. So that was a big thing on that. And before I go forward into like the MD Anderson experience and how that leads me into like industry and data science, did you have any questions on that or anything you wanted to further explore? No, I just, I, I'm sorry if this sounds like a silly <laughs> a silly any, little addition anything. here, but um, look, there's the old adage that, that laughter is the best medicine. Did you <laughs> did you learn any interesting things about laughter, cheerfulness? I mean, I mean, we hear a lot about sort of the psychobiologic component of many diseases nowadays. Did you obviously you, know, you, you were focusing on, on neurosurgery and some of these really complex interventions, but. Um, any, any, any big aha moments during uh, those 200 or so uh, studies with the pa different patients that, wow, you know, this is true. Laughter is great medicine. <laughs> yeah, with laughter and like the medicinal uses of it, um, kind of things we were looking at. So we definitely saw some things that were different between like the fake laughter and then like when you're actually able to like capture the real ones by showing them like silly videos or whatnot. Um, very rare. You'll find this in literature, even going back to like the Wilder Penfield kind of mapping, yeah, yeah. where like when you actually get like the stimulation where you actually cause laughter. Um, I probably saw in terms of like the epilepsy patients, maybe once, never in the uh, brain cancer patients. And then like DBS, you get that like every once in a while, especially if you're getting somewhere that's getting close to like that. Uh, nucleus accumbens or like some of these kind of like more midbrain things. You actually do get that. Um, so I saw that more kind of with um, the DBS patients with that. And that was always fascinating. Um, and, but yeah, in terms of like the medicinal uses, there, you know, you know what? And this is just for the listeners as well. Probably the best research you're going to find by that is by a person who unfortunately passed away not too long. His name's Hawk Concept, but spelled like J-A-A-K. Okay. Look up the ultrasonic vocalization in uh, tickling rats. And I forget huh. exactly what the Hertz was, but a lot of the stuff they were using that as um, kind of like a stand-in in terms of uh, like, like really like strong affect when they were like tickling these rats, they have these really uh, high ultrasonic vocalizations and folks like uh, Concept and... Um, I want to say Jeremy Bergdorf, uh, talked to him for a number of years too, but yeah, they would do stuff looking at kind of like the genetics and kind of like the big hormone stuff. And that's not necessarily coming to mind in terms of what the big findings are, but that's probably the best you're going to 
like fine really looking at those um like that kind of like chemical and hormonal aspect and even some of like the health aspects uh, um to that as well um so that wasn't too much of a diversion but yeah like yeah, I said, no, that's definitely the name to go to for that kind of research um looking at kind of like the uh health aspect of that there's um yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll keep it there. If you have anything else kind of like around uh, uh, the health space, you know what? Like there's even interesting things I remember from, uh, I don't know if it was a special kind of narcolepsy, but I remember there's specifically, um, what is Sebastian's last name? But they would do stuff with like working with um, uh, like narcolepsy patient. And mm -hmm. some of the things that would really trigger would be like really strong laughter. I remember this is just an antidote, but I remember he, in terms of uh, him and a collaborator of his would talk about um, younger people uh, trying to make each other, like they'd have pillows all on the ground, trying to make each other like laugh really hard. And then like the last one standing literally wins. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I'd hear even kind of stories about that. And then, you know, there's other things like, uh, yeah, but I don't want to go too far because yeah, you asked that's, that's about fine. my health. But yeah, I could talk about like shop around humor uh, humor research uh, as well. Like I said, it definitely right. was something that was uh, uh, important. And it also comes back in funny ways in terms of other things in my career. Yeah. But any other thing before I go more into? Uh, no, I, 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 uh, I, said, I, I, I know you're, uh, it, it's a, you know, laughter and, and humor is a passion uh, of your your story, but yeah, please take take us to MD Anderson. Uh, no problem. Uh, yeah, so with MD Anderson, um, all that really was focused on like, all right, how can I get like better methods and methodology out there um, to like uh, help out these patients? Which top of the line in terms of doing the uh, uh, the fMRI, the DTI, which mm -hmm. is like looking at the white matter tracks in terms of MRI imaging. Uh, doing things in terms of transcranial magnetic stimulation and having a really good system at that. On top of the things that they're doing with uh, neuropsych before, in surgery, when you wake them up and do the kind of like stimulation and then working with them if you have to in terms of neurorehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Fantastic top of the line sort of thing. And my main thing was uh, doing things to help kind of like in, in if there is a way, you know, improve that in terms of like different protocols. Yep. And at the same time, I, I was very fortunate. It was someone I met through my brother, um, uh, Wesley Okeke, who was looking to start before they even had um, brick and mortar. Um, this business incubator that was helped that aimed at folks who wanted to like have businesses to help humanities in different ways. Um, which from the folks and the kind of folks that they were talking, which is Fruition Technology Labs, by the way, Fruition Tech Labs is still around in Houston. Um, it was just something where, um, you know, just hearing folks' story and the kind of things that they want to do to like help out in different ways um, but not really having luck in terms of flight, you know, like if you want, you know, go to Sand Hill Road and be like, I'm the Uber of shipping brownies, you know, you're going to get some coin. But, you know, if you want to do something like, a self-filling water bottle uh, that helps, you know, it's very slow, but helps folks, you know, like just in case, you know, they're like in a dry desert place and they need water to live or a fitness band for pregnant women in the third world or kind of like things on that like realm, uh, not necessarily like good luck in terms of getting funding, but uh, you know, I heard out in terms of West uh, uh, vision and by this point, like I said, 
all academia, all hospital. Um, so anything in terms of like looking at opportunity, like uh, um, like a business opportunity and what makes a good one. I was really wasn't sure, but I really was kind of like interested in that mission. Um, so after my time at um, MD Anderson, uh, I kind of went full speed ahead in terms of helping out with this business incubator. And that was kind of my first touch of um, working with data and working with projects and actually seeing that my skill set actually trans translates outside of academia because I did not know. So I, that's another time I feel like I got really lucky. It's not something where uh, there is a, uh, uh, you know, like, like a cabal in terms of like psychology or um, uh, cognitive neuroscience in terms of like, oh, there's nothing outside and, you know, in terms of industry. But, you know, the folks that are in academia, at least in those fields, um, they're in it because they've been successful with academia all their lives. And they really don't know like what's outside of academia. So they really didn't know, even though they were showing stuff like using machine learning algorithms for uh, analyzing brain data. I had no idea that that had like, you know, application and like folks actually wanted that kind of skill set, um, like in terms of industry and outside of academia. I thought it was just something used for science. Um, in fact, like I said, in the next place, even after uh, uh, working at fruition, um, uh, they had to explain to me what a data scientist was. And I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, that's something I can do. Um, so that's how like not knowing and whatnot. So I, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, but you know, like uh, both with neuroscientists and um, folks in kind of like psychology, I have been trying to play like Paul Revere in terms of like, here's what your skill set can uh, land you outside and other kind of like opportunities out of that. But going back a little bit, um, again, work with fruition, working with amazing in terms of like different kind of projects, learning in terms of like the marketing and even working with, uh, because Houston, while there's not like a strong VC scene, very seed rich because of all the, you know, petroleum millionaires sure. so just reaching out to the folks that way and getting these folks at least that kind of like one, two year funding uh, to really get started off. And at least in fruition, like once you kind of get that seed funding, you quote unquote graduate, unless you just want to like keep the, you know, like the co-working space, that's absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, I really got bit by the bug in terms of like, oh my goodness, this is actually things that like, can directly help people quickly. So, um, I, you know, I wanted to look in terms of like, all right, what else in industry can I be helpful for? I was very fortunate to uh, uh, meet Zach Carmen of uh, Consumer Affairs. Uh, he's mm -hmm. the one that explained to me again what data scientist was. And uh, I was just like, uh, sure. And so, yeah, I headed up to Tulsa, Oklahoma for a number of years uh, doing that work, which that was fun because they have so many different kind of categories and sectors and uh, different kind of portfolios that they look at in terms of helping people. Um, and there, there were some things, uh, again, it's just in terms of being a data scientist, the, the one and only for a little while. And it really was just, all right, here's a problem that this department's having, how can you help in that? Um, it was fun to see where I could apply that kind of like, scientific methodology to mm -hmm. like some of these things because even with some of these things which a big aspect I ended up focusing on was like around sales strategy and helping out with that um there were other kind of like fun ones where like uh we're doing stuff to uh like try to catch scammers uh but I can talk about that one a little bit later maybe when we get more into like cybersecurity because that was kind of a precipitating event on that but 
uh, again, like the thing with like sales, but still, I think data scientists are kind of weird when it comes to sales and marketing. Like, ugh, like that's that. But you know, when you know, when, when I saw sales, it was kind of like you know, it was like psychology with a scoreboard. I'm like, man, I am hooked uh, in terms of understanding that. So like, I, I never really left in terms of like the psychology and like how can it be applied to help people behind. In fact, like I said I think nearly everything I do, uh, that's always not even too much in the background. It's kind of like front and center, but seeing how I could be helpful in terms of, um, uh, all right, so what is the best for you? Because you, you'll hear online on LinkedIn or whatnot, like folks arguing like, oh, phones are dead or social selling or there's too many people on social selling. Um, uh, but, you know, actually doing kind of the methodology of work with each individual, like, okay, um, work with these two methods, but don't use this one for two weeks then use these two in this one. You can actually like see like, okay, per a sales rep basis, like what are the uh, like best, um, where are their best mediums in terms of communication and where are they getting like the most conversions? Mm-hmm. So just, you, you're, you're afforded that kind of opportunity um, in industry where a lot of things, even with like sales and then even when you get into cybersecurity, like you can't send out phishing emails and, you know, an academic saying, hence, you know, there's not too much academic, research and that there's some good people trying to do stuff like that chris hadnaggy comes to mind uh in terms of you know he just got an adjunct position and you know he's a social engineering extraordinaire but a lot of these kind of things you are not going to be able to look at in terms of academic sense but they're obviously important in terms of you know bigger commerce to the company obviously and if one just has like good kind of scientific methodology and bringing that from you know, whatever their, uh, you know, kind of background is, you're able to really help people out. And that's, uh, that, that, that's what I saw pretty quickly, be it with sales, marketing, search engine optimization, even some stuff in call center, probably my favorite call center thing, which folks feel free, please study it on your own. Uh, uh, but this is the kind of insight that I saw in like a couple of different things. Um, I saw a lot of things in terms of the call centers where, killing it in the morning and then right before they leave just to make their numbers like they, you know, they make their quota but there's this big lull kind of in the middle and i remember just one of the things that's you know after seeing that in terms of their pipeline i was just like why don't you have a morning quota and an afternoon quota it doesn't even have to be like more just be like try to get this many in the morning just split it in half this many in the morning before lunch and then this many before you leave triple and quadruple the amount of conversions and some of these kind of like call center related things. Um, and that's all I did in terms of just like setting up the methodology for that. And you can have an immediate impact in terms of whatever you're setting. And that's why I tried to um, do on that. And we had a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, when it comes to at consumer affairs, that's kind of where also um, the two things, I guess that I kind of do kind of like were born in that. Um, one was the robotic process automation, the process automation, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, low and no code, which, you know, gravitating towards that because, um, you know, I want solutions where, you know, eventually, you know, you're like so easy, you know, like your CXO can do it sort of things and, you know, they can build it after teaching them. I don't know if I ever got to that point in some of these things, like if anything, like complexity kind of got like more and more on top of some of these platforms, um. But yeah, like I said, that, that kind of aspect in terms of the process automation, even some of the other things kind of like marrying that to some of the other stuff I'm doing, 
did that in terms of, uh, you know, start that in terms of consumer affairs, move that into eventually um, things around uh, Clear Channel Outdoor, uh, mm-hmm. the work company. Um, and even the kind of stuff that I'm doing in terms of my current work right now, yeah, like process automation in terms of helping out clients. And there's just a lot of use cases for that where, um, you know, it's, it's much more simpler than like a machine learning or AI uh, sort of setup. Um, not necessarily anything you train. It's usually something that's just based on uh, your, your graphical user interface and kind of navigating on that. There's some things you could do kind of like in the background as well, but, um, and, you know, like running macros if you're doing something with Excel or any mm-hmm. kind of like Microsoft product. But yeah, if you have something where data starts here, be it like your email, database, Excel document, um, some third-party website. We use like Bank of America all the time. Like mm-hmm. um, get that data, format it, um, do any kind of like calculations or equations that you need to, and then post it to wherever it needs to be, maybe into an email or into uh, an Excel document or um back in the database or posting it into some third-party application, CRM, ERP system, whatever you need. And as simple as it is, like I said, there's just a ton of use cases uh, uh, for this in terms of moving that. Um, So yeah, that's been um, trying to be helpful as much as I can in terms of uh, that kind of work and building up that kind of business. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot of fun. The other thing that was really born uh, in consumer affairs um, was, um, in terms of data science, um, the one thing that, well, I'll just tell you the thing that inspired me, um, Richard Hoyer's, uh, Richard's Hoyer, um, uh, Psychology of Intelligence Analysis. You know, it's a book. It's actually a manuscript, I believe, originally from the 70s. Uh, so Richard Hoyer, he was a CIA analyst. It was originally like something from the seventies. I think it got public in maybe nineteen ninety nine, and um, all well. Let me kind of juxtapose it with the kind of things I still see with some aspects in um, uh, data science. A little bit better because folks are looking at things in terms of like uh, the ethics and like uh, what are the kind of biases. But at the time, and still a lot of now, um, in terms of the aspects of Okay, analyzing the data, really scrutinize the data, uh, doing stuff in terms of like feature extraction and feature engineering. A-OK in terms of the data science route. In terms of the why am I doing this? Like, what are the biases and heuristics that are really kind of like motivating me to like do this? Is it because like we just had the scripts already? Is that really like the best, you know, reasoning for that? Is it because Google or your competitors use that algorithm or they do it like this? So that's why you're doing it. You really don't even necessarily have good business case for it. Um, and those kind of things in terms of like, what's really um, guiding why you choose this data set to begin with or the bigger questions. I don't see it that much in terms of data science, at least then it's gotten better. But, uh, you know, in terms of even like since that psychology of intelligence analysis through um, the field of intelligence analysis methodology, you know, folks in terms of, uh, uh, you know, our government have been thinking about this for quite a while in terms of different ways to either address, externalize, and even mitigate the biases that could be affecting their um, analyses. So, you know, I, I tried to reach out to these different folks in different ways to be helpful on that. I was fortunate enough to be able to work with um, some grants on that um, in terms of, like, 
different sort of proposals. Um, and that was kind of the birth in terms of uh, how it, can these uh, like things in terms of psychology and neuroscience and these kind of methodology, how can they be helpful within the defense and national security space? So like from there it was, uh, okay, in terms of cybersecurity and reaching out to folks on that, uh, discovering things in terms of social engineering, which, you know, like kind of looking at like these different kind of people variables and how can you mm -hmm. get to the system. A lot of it's, you know, like email base or getting on the phone base, but there's other kind of clever ways around it as well. But, you know, that was an applied psychology of itself. So trying to be helpful around that. And then uh, at the time also uh, what they now call adversarial machine learning, but, you know, like these kind of first things in terms of hacking uh, these machine learning algorithms, a lot of that kind of first has brought um, different sort of things in terms of search engine optimization, those kind of SEO kind of methodologies into the mm -hmm. picture, and then trying to do kind of like the um, uh, low code or no code hacks as well in terms of some of these things. A lot of those just messing around with Alexa um, for the most part, those kind of systems. Um, but yeah, that, um, that was kind of like the birth of all right how can this be helpful in defense and national security and that is um a big primary question and driver what you know um, I'm, I'm trying to do with a, a lot of work right now just trying to um because you know like it's not even like a like a like, like a future sort of thing um it, you know it's an absolute now thing in terms of things like disinformation yep. um these things with, uh, um, it could be stuff in terms of human performance and related things. And then also, you know, biggie right now would be with, uh, you know, the quote unquote Havana syndrome and the yeah. diplomats and things going around there, which, you know, uh, that's been declassified and put in, you know, National Academy of Science, where it's very likely something in terms of directed energy weapons uh, yeah. around that, uh, probably something around high power microwaves. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to do my best in terms of utilizing that background, um, all of it really, um, uh, even with some of the humorous stuff when it comes to that, actually helpful in terms of some of the disinformation work is, you know, trying to get people to laugh um, and seeing if they're trying to be funny or whatnot, you know, that's a big precipitator of seeing if things go viral or not in terms of it being a vehicle to move some of these messages, so yeah, I just try to put it all together to be helpful, including the automation stuff and where they come together with things like human machine teaming to mm -hmm. see, you know, big thing that people focus on would be around um, trusting these AI systems. Yeah, that's a big part, just getting folks to be like, all right, right, these things are pretty dang good. They're better than, you know, just human control and that. But it's also the aspect of when not to trust them if they are being, systems are being manipulated and whatnot as well, which that is a bigger thing. Um, because we're not playing in uncontested EM space anymore. Um, it's something where the near, kind of near-peer adversaries that a lot of folks are kind of focusing on now, they have the toys in terms of the EW weaponry to kind of like mess up our signals and mess up our kind of AI systems. So keeping that in mind as well, that's the kind of things in terms of defense and uh, I think I heard some CNAS guys call it like degradation dominance as in like when signals are degraded, are you able to still be able to move forward and uh, perform with whatever sort of goals you have in mind? Um, that's going to be the new norm and that's going to be the new norm for life where it is going to end up going back to uh, not just totally relying on, you know, the, our information systems, but, you know, 
it goes back to ourselves. It goes back to our brain and cognition and the cognitive domain. So yeah, I try to be as helpful as I can in terms of things around that and the automation. And yeah, I think that takes us pretty close to now, but feel free in terms of anything in terms of the backlog to ask me about um, that you think either you personally are interested in or what you think your um, viewers could be interested in as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you just touched on, actually, um, because we've heard this from other folks sort of in the AI space uh, over the last several months is this uh, issue with sort of getting the human out of the picture versus yes. having that teaming, as you were just mentioning. And I, I was, when I, <laughs> when I was researching and preparing for you, uh, Sean, I, you know, I, 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 I went to some really, uh, you know, fonts of, of knowledge in this space, like Wikipedia. <laughs> and, you know, there's these, okay. di these definitions, you know, yeah, we talk about robotics process automation at the beginning, but there's sort of this unassisted robotics process automation where, mm -hmm. as you're saying, you know, getting, getting the human out of there and this is going to be artificial intelligence uh, uh, dealing with whatever, you know, these threats and, and we can't, obviously we're not going to go into specific things that you're working on, but what type of things, I mean, do you, uh, as you look at these different threats uh, that, that you have to deal with, whether they're different cyber attacks, uh, different adversaries that are out there, um, are there specific areas that we should be, so the stuff that we see in the news in terms of the cyber attacks that are happening nowadays that we should be uh, not having a human involved in where the AI should be doing more of the job or are you purely in the camp that, you know, you have to keep these two things teamed. And then, you know, when, when the human is out of the way in some of this um, uh, sort of unassisted uh, mm -hmm. robotics process automation, sort of what happens, you know, is the... <laughs> Does the system learn like, hey, you know, this is a, uh, this is country X and they're trying to do such and such. And this is, oh, this is just a hacker that wants to steal some money. And well, how's it all? I know I'm sort of talking in a couple of different directions because I'm out of my space. But um, talk about some of this, especially as it pertains to national security here. I sit here in the U.S., obviously don't go into anything that is confidential gotcha, gotcha, per your booze, gotcha. Allen. But uh, please take us on a little journey there. Yeah, I guess, I guess this would definitely be the time where this is uh, like very much my opinion and thinking and not necessarily in terms of like my employer on this one. So let me definitely put that out there on that. Uh, my employer is awesome, by the way. Uh, but in terms of that, let's look at it in terms of on our side. Um. I think in terms of that human machine teaming, I think there needs to be more of a conversation um, things in terms of like the human with the machine. Let's take it this way. I already talked about the one like, okay, the machine may be getting manipulated or whatnot. Okay, human, you really need to take over. Human, you are getting, based on the biometrics, really overloaded and you're not noticing a couple of things. Maybe that's a time when, you know, AI and the machine learning should kick in during those sort of things. If it's not something where you're seeing like, okay, the system seems to be okay on that um, in terms of like being overloaded in that. So it's kind of my thinking in terms of like, all right, where is a human and machine at this time in terms of also just, you know, like how good and how reliable is uh, the different um, AI system on that? Mm -hmm. Now, defensively, uh, it's going to be kind of like, all over the place, which I think is something which I don't want to miss. 
I don't even want to say like it may be this country, but they, it's it is out there in terms of um, a country recently um, using a drone that was just running all yeah. off of AI. There was yeah. no human in the loop in that in terms of even doing an attack and getting out of dodge. Uh, so defending in terms of like okay, a completely out of the loop sort of uh, scenarios. Um, we may be seeing more of that, and we definitely need to be prepared for that. And that's really mean we have to do it on our side, but I do think that's um, on defensively, we need to look at all the possibilities and how to um, counteract those. Um, but for our side, um, there could be scenarios, and I'm trying to th- try and think off the top, but again, like when, you know, like if it, AI applications where it's like, okay, like make me, how am I going to look like when I'm 60 year old? You don't need no dang human in that. But when there is something where there's always like constant lives on the line, um, I can think real hard and we can think in terms of like, is there any situation where you want the human totally out of the loop? I cannot think of any right now. I do think that having, it doesn't have to be in the loop, but at least on the loop, uh, so to speak to, you know, uh, stretch an analogy, um, I think it's always going to be, uh, well, not always, but at least near future, the kind of thing that I see, that's probably for the best. Even if it is like this conversation, be it with the biometrics or whatnot between humans, like really like not ready right now, let's have some of the AI aspects take over versus AI maybe like, yeah, let's depend more on the human in this one. So I think that kind of conversation is probably um, best going forward for at least how I can see it. And, you know, I, I know that you're, uh, you know, also, as you mentioned, very um, interested in uh, utilizing your, your cognitive neuroscience background and, and once again, converging w- with some of these really uh, advanced themes, whether they're cognitive security, cognitive warfare. I know uh, there, there's a, a bunch of different uh, areas that you talk Perfect. about here. Um, Take us Sean, a, a little into your future visions, if you could, on, on where some of this integration uh, potentially could be leading us in terms of tech, new innovation, looking out, I don't know if it's 10 years, 15 years, but um, with, with these two really interesting baskets of experience uh, and, 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 and knowledge, where, where are we going with all of this? Where to begin with that one? I would have to say, even in terms of the future, some of it may be almost playing catch up. Um, and what do I mean by that? Um, if you talk to folks that are kind of like in information operation or information warfare, and then even the EW or the electronic warfare folks, um, there was there that was a focus um in terms of you know like our nation whatnot coming in the 90s cyber is the hot new kid getting all the funding and whatnot these other things kind of got deep prioritized but not with our adversaries they kept going with a lot of these things and tuning these things up uh and now be it with like the disinformation and misinformation aspect or some of these things that we're seeing, you know, affecting uh, different folks in terms of like diplomats and service people. Um, there's an aspect where 
it is it looks like it's getting more like foci um again uh very happy about that um but part of it is like so kind of like a big catch-up effort with some of those kind of aspects i'm glad to be like uh, uh see that um going on that mm-hmm. i think part of the aspect is the catch-up some of it is um let's let's pick on the academic researchers again um Making sure, well, let me put it this way. Most of the stuff that you're going to be seeing in academic research in like a psychology or cognitive neuroscience kind of basis, um, it's going to be, the word that they look for that they want to have strong is internal validity, as in a very controlled environment in the lab, nothing around usually just a person in a computer, maybe an eye tracker or in the MRI machine and very controlled everything, like the same sort of thing. And uh, try to do as many trials as you can and getting that out there. Does that research translate into the quote unquote real world or in real life? Or like when I see these kind of like things happen or this phenomenon happening in the lab, is that exactly what's happening and what's going to happen um, in the outside world? Not necessarily, and that would be uh, the externally valid part. And a lot of things, if anything, um, and Robert Cialdini, who is actually um, you know, the godfather in terms of like influence and persuasion kind of research, like coming from psychology, um, he actually has a paper out there um, talking about like why he doesn't do field studies anymore and why he doesn't suggest um, like, you know, postdocs or whatnot doing field studies, you know, because they take a long time. And the folks that, again, if you're looking to get promoted you can do probably you know like 10 experiments and say you know like seven of those work in the time of doing you know like a field study and it may not work and you may again you need to have working research to get the degree and to move on so again it's been solely it's been very deprioritized again things that actually work quote unquote in the field or being applied um so I think much more research, uh, and again, the kind of stuff you do see that would actually be an industry. Um, they may keep it for themselves in terms of, you know, like, oh yeah, these are our things that, you know, like we found out in terms of like our sales pipeline and it's in our playbooks, but we're not going like, to publicly let people know about that. Um, and then even defense is going to be the same thing in terms of doing research that would be more applicable to the different sort of uh, soldiers, warfighters, or whoever it is in terms of at least knowing that it works in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that more work that is focused primarily on application and as much in terms of field testing as you can, the more of those are better in terms of this space. Um, and that includes also the equipment as well because uh, some of these EEG systems, I knew it already, they are delicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things can't take a beating well. Um, but if you want that to be like a primary biometric for something like, again, with EEG, you're going to get great stuff in terms of like sleepiness and drowsiness, which is great to know. Um, you can do some stuff even with like the cognitive load stuff that we talked about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then other kind of aspects, you know, you need to have a hardy EEG system that can, you know, uh, take a little uh, kick in. So having kind of like a more resilient um, kind of like neurotech uh, for some of these different kind of applications in the field, that's going to be something that's absolutely needed as well um and i wonder 
Well, I know one thing you may want and what the crowd would want. Like, what about Elon Musk? What about those implantables? What about stuff like that? I'm actually still at the point I'm pretty bearish on that. Why the heck is that? Because from maybe stuff has changed in like five, six years since, you know, I asked like a bunch of neurosurgeons on this, but it's, it's not even like, oh, okay, am I going to get like malpractice lawsuits or so there's like a fear on that? No, it's not necessarily that, but in terms of putting things in cosmetically and doing brain surgery on somebody that's uh, like not having a tumor or epilepsy, all the ones I talk to are like pretty like, uh, I don't know. So that kind of aspect of, you can see in the literature and some things in terms of cosmetic neurosurgery. Um, I have not met a lot of neurosurgeons that are like really down for it. It doesn't matter if uh, in terms of like, oh, what if there's like a Google sized budget like throwing stuff in? So it's not the money. It's not even like the fear of like, oh, I'm going to do something wrong is kind of this thing like, this comfortability in terms of like doing surgery as minimally evasive as it is on somebody whose brain is absolutely fine. Um, so I don't know. And it, like I said, I just haven't seen in terms of context. And I still, there's some context that I could see it, but again, like doing the surgery. So, you know, like I can turn off like a light that, you know, I can just use my hand, you know, obviously the kind of things in terms of the, um, which is already being done uh, 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 before that work in terms of folks who have kind of like locked in syndrome or, mm -hmm. or paralyzed in different ways. Of course, of course, like that actually has like a uh, big use. But in terms of the neurotypical population where there's nothing going on in the brain, they just want to, um, you know, get kind of plugged in the thing. I'm not sure. And like I said, right now, so I'm pretty bearish. I'm mainly bearish just because in terms of talking to neurosurgeons, I can't see. I, I haven't talked to any of them where like, oh yeah, like definitely. Um, so yeah, I guess that would be, uh, not to be a party pooper on that. Um, uh, but yeah, hopefully it helps out in terms of like the kind of things I see in the future, which is mainly just saying like these things need to get fixed so we can have a good future on this. And then other aspects where a lot of folks are excited about, you know, stuff like implants. Um, uh, CRISPR definitely isn't there yet in terms of brain kind of related things. So that's not a thing. Um, I put it out there again for talking about future. The aspect of like bioprinting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like different kind of uh, organs or different kind of things like that. I think it's really cool. And I totally visualize something where, okay, you do a resection of the brain. A very, you do a good scan of that resection. And then you can like bioprint the neurons into it. And, you know, instead of leaving just a big hole in there, That'd be freaking cool. I've seen something that's get like close to that and like, they're going that direction. But, you know, I just think that's cool in terms of like not necessarily like evaluating like feasibility around that. Right. But, you know, I think that's also pretty dang cool as well. So that's more like the both the wet and the hardware side of that. Um, and, you know, if you, there's anything in terms of like the disinformation aspect or performance or um, any, anything else in terms of like these tools, feel free to ask me. Yeah, um, I, I, I completely agree. I've, I've done actually a couple, a couple shows on, uh, actually with a couple of DARPA um, on, on a previous yeah. platform, and, and they, yeah, they're they're in the same camp that they uh, they're working on sort of the the non invasive stuff and how you can 
uh, yeah, get in, not have to drill a hole in someone's head. And it was just, you know, it's interesting because another uh, guest I had on a few, several months ago was with this Future of Life Institute up in Boston. And, and Elon Musk is one of their uh, supporters. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, really against this, you're mentioning this, this AI only, you know, uh, drone attacks and all that type of mm-hmm. stuff. But it's, um, it's just, it's very interesting because I, I, I'm glad there's, Folks like you that are working on thinking about these problems and uh, not just from the technology perspective, but you have the bioscience expertise because they're, you know, as you've explained uh, throughout this time, uh, they're quite integrated. Uh, We have a lot to learn from both sides. And um, it's really a fascinating set of of themes. Um, What, anything... uh, interesting coming up that you can talk about in terms of conferences you're going to be at or uh, new meetings obviously once again you can't get into the the national security stuff but uh any any hot things i can scoop you (laughs) have a scoop here while i have you um let me talk about at least two organizations outside of the firm sure that try to be very helpful in Ooh, you know what? I'm actually going to give you a scoop on a third one. Uh, okay. Stay tuned to that. Um, one is the Information Professional Associations, or IPA. It's a lot of folks that kind of have, they're either former or current in terms of like information operation, information warfare, and a bunch of folks that are just trying to like lead the charge and things in terms of uh, um like the cognitive security space um, and looking at things like that. Um, uh, they just had their um, uh, uh, the, the, their Phoenix Challenge Conference not too long ago. Um, and again, if you're a member of IPA, you're able to you know, get access to these different things. I know they want to do more workshops. I know they want to do like a young professionals kind of program. Um, and then they haven't awesome uh, uh, podcast in terms of the cognitive crucible, which I think in terms of, uh, I probably think there's like two in the space in terms of, um, uh, well, this one's definitely like directed in terms of like cognitive security and that'd be cognitive crucible uh, through IPA, um, which is an excellent uh, podcast to check out. The other one would probably be like the mad scientist blog uh, that comes through like that program with um, army trade Um, mm-hmm. They Yeah. They talk a lot about things around um, uh, cognitive side as well. It's usually pretty fascinating. Um, so I probably see those two in terms of the space. Uh, I think, I think are pretty good, but IPA in terms of information professional association, mm-hmm. like I, said, I think it's excellent. Anybody wants to become a member, um, uh, and they're interested in folks like working with industry and stuff like that. Uh, even that conference is really interesting to see some of the interest, uh, the industry folks kind of like talk about stuff and like these things with like um, defense and industry kind of coming together. The other group, which you have to look and it would be uh, through NATO. But um, if you look through NATO, if you look at NATO ACT, they have something called the NATO Innovation Hub. And one of the main things that they focus around is uh, cognitive warfare. Um, And they're doing some very interesting, that's more in terms of like, you gotta be like in the gov or, you know, like a national security thing to kind of like get see at those kind of like workshops or whatnot. 
They're doing some cool stuff, though, like trying to reach out to industry. I think they have another idea-thon mm-hmm. that they're probably going to put out there probably closer to the fall. So folks interested in that, stay tuned, where uh, they'd probably be interested in folks in like industry in terms of like, okay, what are some good ideas in terms of the space, hearing them out, um, and kind of getting like publicity around that. So um, I think they're trying to do more stuff to kind of be like, more out towards uh, industry or whatnot, but they're primarily still like defense and whatnot. But I, um, I think they have really cool stuff cooking up and obviously like I said, um, uh, helped out uh, 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 not just the US, but like all the allied nations are under NATO. So I think that was pretty cool as well. Now the third one just kind of came to mind. It is still being worked on. It's more than like back of the napkin. But it is something where a relationship and another supporter of myself for the longest time mm-hmm. has been the Mind Science Foundation, MSM, okay. which is actually in um, based in San Antonio. So okay. I went to school to, you know, pretty close to San Antonio, and then I'm living there currently right now. Um, my Science Foundation has always, like, continuously looked after me even some of like the humor research conferences i was putting on they were helping out with that in terms of uh some of the back end stuff and um one of the things that i pitched to them and there seems to be interest is i said throughout all these different things that i did um it always felt like there is a strong or prime primarily focus on applying psychology and neuroscience to help out uh, like different professionals in different ways. Um, and that's something where I want to get more of that message again. Like I don't want to keep it all to myself. Um, it's something where I kind of wanted to get that message more out there. Um, both to folks in like the C-suite or brass on the shoulder, you know, like powdered barrister wigs or whatever the case. Um, be like, hey, these are different aspects that, you know, psychology and neuroscience can help you in that, which some people would know, you know, they may have like user experience researchers, okay, um, but, you know, they may just keep them straight to working on the website sort of things. But there's a lot of interesting things where that kind of methodology, which is derived from cognitive psychology, um, can be helpful in different ways. They may have like psychologists and psychology backgrounds mainly focused on one problem, but there's so many different things I saw in terms of use cases where that could just be um, helpful in a bunch of different ways. So both in terms of getting that information out there and also letting folks in psychology and neuroscience know. So like the grad students or the postdocs or even very early um, uh, professorships know that there are these folks that could use our help and use these kind of things in terms of helping out their different use cases and problems and getting it in front of them as well and showing them that there is something also um, outside of academia where they can use their skill set. So, um, you know, like, I guess like a, another sort of thing, even all that, even like why I'd want to do that, which we're trying to make it, it may be something uh, like, like to a podcast that's what we're trying to work on now um, in terms of like exactly what the medium is and getting that and like getting folks who like have a psychology background or have seen it utilized in their space to good effect and getting them interviewed and um, showing like it's everywhere. Um, You know, like, I guess one of the things I just tried to aim at, like why I'm doing that, even like all this kind of reach out on these sort of things, um, 
guess I almost wanted to be, I aim to almost try to be like the mentor. Like I truly wish I had, wish I had um, like really oversight because I was fortunate enough with like Chris, Bujar- Dr. Chris, Chris Bujarski at, um, uh, at Dartmouth in mm-hmm. terms of taking me in, but he was never officially my advisor. I have very, very, very hands-off um, advisor, which allowed me to do like a lot of things, but um, for a lot of things, including like post like there wasn't necessarily someone I can, I had to learn it kind of on my own or kind of like, it was almost like an Oliver Twist, uh, less than Lord of the Flies kind of situation where like grad students and like other postdocs are kind of like teaching each other. Um, and that's how I had, kind of had to learn that way. Um, but I try to aim in terms of anybody that, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with in terms of like research as like a mentor or when we get interns for whatever kind of job, I really try to be that. And even, um, I didn't talk about this at all, but even between consumer affairs and uh, Clear Channel Outdoor, I did a year um, at Texas State um, teaching in the philosophy department. Mm-hmm. And the big thing that kind of drove me towards that um, two professors that were really important to my trajectory, they were retiring at the same time. And I kind of wanted to have, uh, I always thought teaching was interesting. I kind of wanted to have that, like that Ken Griffey senior junior moment where I'm like, Oh, I'm playing with my paw, uh, sort of, <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, so I had, uh, fun in that and, uh, ended up being like exactly 100 students between the two semesters. But yeah, in terms of trying to get them on the right path and always like writing recommendations and try and be there if they ever have any questions and, you know, just smiling ear to ear. Cause now it's at the point where like they're, they're off the race of either to like grad school or law school or uh, in different kind of career options and seeing that it's uh, that's really, really fun too. And yeah, just trying to uh, do what I can to kind of uh, share the stuff that I felt like I, I used the word lucky probably a lot during this conversation that I was just lucky to kind of come across and really fortunate to just try to share that with folks so they don't have to reinvent wheels or scrape any knees or any, you know scrape less knees uh, than I guess I had to. So I try to be that for folks as well in terms of, I guess that's another aspect in terms of like what, what's the future going to be like. Uh, I, I'm trying to do my best to, try to get these folks that are even smarter than me um, to look at these problems and look at them together wherever they are, being pretty agnostic to that. So we can ensure that better future. So, yeah, I guess that's a big thing I try to aim for as well. It's, um, it's a fascinating uh, set of, uh, of, things you've been involved in Sean and you know thinking about you know uh, not just obviously the process automation but the defense uh, national security uh, and then he is saying you bringing together um, cognitive neuroscience bringing together tech and AI dumping some humor (laughs) into it It, it, it's really you know a a very elegant uh, sort of convergent set of uh, things you're involved in and it's really wishing you the best with all this not just in in in, in the own work what you're doing but obviously you're mentioning training uh the next generation uh because there are as you were saying these um there's all these possibilities out there to how 
uh, these different skill sets, which we might not normally think of, can, can be brought together to really address uh, some of the big problems <laughs> that we mm-hmm. that we have uh, headed our way, whether it's national security, whether it's health. Um, and, and I think that's where the answers uh, lie for a lot of this stuff at these intersections. So really, really exciting uh, stuff um, for for everybody that uh, is going to be listening to this particular episode on our podcast or, mm-hmm. or watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, you've been listening to Dr. Sean Guillory, Senior Robotics Process Automation Expert at Blues Allen Hamilton. Uh, check out some of his, <laughs> his scientific publications in the area of cognitive neuroscience. Check him out on the internet. Really uh, a fascinating uh, convergent <laughs> expert type, uh, type of folks <laughs> that we really like to profile on our show. Uh, Sean, I, I want to take, you know, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us for a little while about all these really fascinating themes. Thank you for everything you're doing there uh, at Booz Hamilton to keep us secure. Uh, and, and as we say on our show, thank you for helping to create a better tomorrow through, through everything you're involved in. Uh, really very exciting stuff. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite. I really appreciate it. Talk again soon. <laughs>